I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show. Good to have you listening in. As a funeral director from generations of funeral directors, Caleb Wilde spends his days encountering what death leaves behind, the corporeal object of the body, the questions of whether the spirit has endured, the grief of loved ones. But his experiences with the deceased have not brought him to some kind of certainty about whether death is the end or the beginning. He writes in his new book, I have become a fundamentalist of doubt. He adds, death is so sudden and so final that in order for humans to cope with mortality, they make up a place that is immortal and eternal, the afterlife. That's some of what we're going to talk about today. Caleb Wilde is a director at the Wilde Funeral Home in Parksburg, Pennsylvania. He's pursuing a doctorate in theology, and his new book is titled All the Ways Our Dead Still Speak. He joins us from Parksburg. Welcome, Caleb. Good to have you on the show. Thank you. It's good to be talking to you. So the fact that as a theologian, you still doubt. Well, that doesn't surprise me. I think that's natural. Faith and doubt seem to be pretty inextricably intertwined. But your apparent conviction, and and you can explain this, that there is no afterlife, I think is surprising given your scholarship and your work. And I'd like to know how you came to that conviction. I think I've seen its abuse too often, especially at funerals, when the afterlife is used as a sales pitch to get people to join the religion of choice, which is in our area, usually Christianity. So I have questioned it because I've seen how much it's been abused, because I've seen how often it's used as a control mechanism, uh, because I've seen how often that not only is it used abusively, but it's used to abuse. Um, And uh, I think I've come to a place where it's okay if somebody believes in it. I have no problem with anybody's belief system. Um, But I think it's helpful if we question it because I think it it has one too many talons in us and uh, to pull those talons out gives us a little bit more freedom to exist in the here and now. I don't want to assume that I know what you mean by control mechanism. So I'm going to ask you to explain that. So there's politics of death. Mm. Uh, There's ways that we use death to uh, control people, especially hell. Hell is a huge one. And then the positive aspect of that is having the streets of gold with your mansions and uh, whatever it is that we dream of having a Tesla or two in the the parking lot. And I guess, I don't know if you need solar panels. Maybe that's just my dream here. (laughs) But um, both of them are used to get religious adherents to obey. Mm -hmm. If you do this, you will receive eternal life. And I don't think that true spirituality should ever be inspired out of Uh, using hell and heaven as a way to extract behavior. And that's what I see. I've seen it as, and especially at funerals, we've all heard pastors or uh, priests get up on the, uh, uh, the podium and 
talk to people about how if they want to see Aunt Eunice one more time, why we're going to have a altar call here. And maybe this is something that I see a lot because I see have seen thousands of funerals. Maybe it's just something that uh, is in our area specifically, but I've seen probably hundreds of services where heaven and hell and seeing Aunt Eunice one more time and being reunited with family are used as a way to get those who come in a vulnerable state to a funeral where they're open and transparent to the reality of death and grief. And all of a sudden they sit down and listen to a service that instead of encouraging that transparency and instead of encouraging uh, us to face this inevitable truth of our mortality, we gloss right over it with happy visions of heaven and horrible views of hell. Yeah. So you're talking about the concept that there is a reward waiting for you in the afterlife. And if you want to be worthy of that reward, here's where the control stuff comes in. Right. Uh, you will follow the path that we've laid out for you. I, I, I'm sure you saw this when it came out, but it's been a while. Uh, the Pew Research uh, Research Organization asked Americans in 2014 whether they believed in the concept of heaven. Seven in ten said they did. I don't think that's surprising. But no. I thought this was interesting. The, the people that they asked who said they did believe in an afterlife described it as a place where, quote, people who have led good lives are eternally rewarded. I mean, you can see religious influence written all over that response. Are, are you are you comfortable saying, you know what, that is just wishful thinking. And that's, you know, that this is you, that's my view. But I chalk that up to wishful thinking. It's a coping me mechanism, I think. It's a coping mechanism. When we're faced with the reality of our finality. It's scary. It's scary to think that one day all of these things that I've done, all these relationships that I've made, all of this will no longer exist. It's scary to think that who we are will someday be forgotten, uh, that generations from now nobody will remember our name. It's scary to think about these things, and it's scary to think about how traumatic death can be and how we don't know. It's just around the corner. And we don't. We do not know. I don't think it'd be healthy if we did. And so it's easy when we start to think about that, when we start to allow the heaviness of the truth of death to settle on our souls, it's easy for us to cope. And, and that's fine. It's, I think that's it. we have to find ways to cope. But any way that cope that keeps us from thinking about these hard truths then we've moved, in, we've moved into something else. Uh, we've moved into a blind spirituality. We've moved into ignorance. We've moved into repression or denial. And that's not healthy. So would you say that your grandfather, who you describe as a fundamentalist of belief, and maybe he described himself the same way, whereas, again, you say you're a fundamentalist of doubt. I mean, would you say that 
for as faithful as he was, he possessed this kind of blind spirituality? If he did, I'm not sure that it was his fault. I think for most of us, it's not. It's something that we've been taught. Uh, I think that most of us are curious and inquisitive. And uh, when we're allowed to think about the deep questions, we do. But somewhere along the way, we're kind of given easy answers to complex things. And those easy answers keep us from exploration. So, um, so I don't know that I, again, I don't really judge. I don't feel like it's my place. I believe what I believe from my experiences. Um, and, uh, if somebody else has another belief from their experiences, if I don't have their experiences, I can't fully understand why they believe what they believe. So, um, back to my grandfather, he wholeheartedly believed in the afterlife. Uh, and some of that was because of the funerals that he sat through and he was a funeral director. Gosh, I think he started working funerals when he was in his teenage years and, uh, didn't quit until he passed away in, uh, his very late eighties. So he had heard thousands and thousands of funeral sermons and eulogies. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't have judgment for for any, uh, I don't have room for judgment. I don't have any basis. Uh, but I do think that all of those services probably uh, did not help his curiosity. I'm going to come back to that in a second. Um, what do you remember? You were close to your grandfather. What do you remember him telling you in your earliest years about what the afterlife was like? I think he strolled the party line, you know, that the afterlife was where we'd meet with family that we've lost. We'd be reunited. My grandmother died in 92, suddenly from an aneurysm. And uh, that, despite the fact that he was well aware of death, that shook him um, pretty heavily. Um, And uh, I think that certainly made him latch on to those beliefs that he had heard. And uh, yeah. I mean, do you think he believed in, let's say, the simplistic you know, the, the kind of thing that when you grow up in a church, you start to hear about pearly gates. And, you know, I, I, I think a lot of that lodges in our imagination, even as we get to adults. That's the kind of thing I heard growing up in the Lutheran church. Sure. And even though you know better in a way, you know, that that image kind of captures your imagination. Do you yeah. think your grandfather, I mean, believed in a kind of it's – it's sunshine and light and you're gathered with your family and some kind of being, you know, administers over this place. I mean, how specific do you remember him talking about what it meant to, to be there? I remember him using all those, those words, streets of gold, really? early gates, mansions, and then you'd get imaginative, and he loved cars, so I think he 
probably talked about having a number of them in heaven. <laughs> His um, favorite cars. <laughs> antiques. Really? Yep. Uh, Model T's specifically. Wow. Yeah. And, and that yeah. would all be there around him. He's there now if there's an afterlife, we should say, right? Right, right. And I think the only way that we can imagine it is to say what it isn't. Because uh, it's if it's better, it's better than what we have. So hmm. we all experience trauma. Uh, we have all experienced hurt. So then heaven will be a place where there is no hurt, where there is no death. Um, it becomes more so of what this place is not than what it actually is. And our imagination really can't take us any farther. So pearly gates and and golden uh, streets are, I guess, the best we can think of. But even those, I, I think, I mean, if there's, if the, there's the ability to wonder, uh, if there's the ability to be creative in what we think it could look like, I think all of those things just fall short artistically. Mm. And if we start thinking about connectivity, if we use better analogies like the internet, I mean, we have technology now that should help us to be able to imagine what it could look like where everybody's connected, where there's this incredible sense of unity that we, we are just glimpsing right now. Um, so even these pearly gates and streets of gold, I mean, they're based off of antiquated imagination, and I'd love to see updates. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to see yeah. a heaven that comes from what we are starting to see as possible. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I think I could get behind. I think half, half of my distaste of the afterlife is just how boring it is and the other part is just how it's used to keep people from seeking deeper meaning uh, and both of those things together are enough for me to say it might exist but i'm going to live like it doesn't and i think that might be a better way to go earlier you said um go being a witness to and participating in some ways in so many funerals over so many years quote, didn't help your grandfather's curiosity. I'm sure he was aware of the questions that you were raising and your own curiosity. How comfortable was he with that? About 10 years ago, I was interviewed uh, for a piece in um, RNS, I think Religious News Services. And the piece was simultaneously run in a, a local paper. Mm -hmm which I had asked it not to be because in the interview, I talked about doubting the afterlife, doubting the resurrection. And again, I wasn't making any explicit statements. I was just being honest uh, in the interview, which I was fine for with religious news service or religion news service. But for my local paper, I knew that everybody would read it. And that's exactly what happened. It was published I was receiving messages from my aunts asking if I was still a Christian, whether I still believed in God. I had people come up to me at funerals and tell me that if I wanted to, we could go back and we could say the sinner's prayer together. And it seems like uh, 
my grandfather got a little bit of wind of it and it was something that he didn't feel too good about, but it had already happened at that point. So what's the, what's the purpose of uh, reprimanding or telling me his disdain? But yeah, it did get out my beliefs or my questions, I should say, uh, my doubts, my pushbacks against the things that I constantly see at funeral homes about the abuse of the afterlife or how it is used to abuse and control. These are questions and they're doubts. And, and I think that especially with the afterlife, we are so defensive because when that coping mechanism is questioned, it opens up a whole new set of existentially tough questions that none of us can really fully grasp. We can only get maybe a little bit closer to. Um, so I, I would kind of hope, honestly, that when my grandfather understood the questions that I was having, maybe they allowed him to inform himself, or maybe they informed him that it's okay if he has some questions about this. You you clearly got more comfortable with the idea of the people in your community knowing some of these questions you're raising and some of the ideas that you're wrestling with. Do you think do you think your family's funeral home has lost business because there are people who say I don't want the fa- the funeral director standing in the church during the service questioning you know what what the the rituals and the rites that we're going through. And I I guess I could understand some of that if that was the case. Yeah, and if it was, I would be absolutely fine with it. Uh, Trusting a funeral director is supremely important. And if for some reason they don't feel like they can trust me, I'd rather them go to a funeral director who they can, who shares their beliefs. Because shared beliefs around death is really important. Uh, It's okay to be comforted by traditions and by rituals. It's okay to have these things be a security uh, when we're looking at death. And um, if for some reason my presence throws that off, then I would rather them be somewhere else. And it probably has taken some families away from us. Uh, we're really closely knit to the funeral homes. I mean, to the community. We've been there for 170 years I'm the sixth generation. So we're, we tell people we're probably related to just about everybody in the area and that we have to be careful who we marry because they could be our second or third cousins. <laughs> oh my gosh. Which in a small town, you know, <laughs> for those of, those of us who come from a small town, um, there's a lot of truth to that. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's my Friday book show, and I'm in conversation with Caleb Wild. He's director at the Wild Funeral Home in Parksburg, Pennsylvania. He's pursuing a doctorate in theology, and he's out with a new book uh, titled All the Ways Our Dead Still Speak. It, it, I, want, I want to make sure I ask you this this question. If you don't believe in a you know, kind of rosy reward style afterlife of heaven. I assume it naturally follows you don't believe in hell. You think the existence ends when we die. 
Is that right? I don't know. Uh, but I think that it's probably healthier to believe that it ends. It's the universe is so expansive. Uh, the analogy of, and I think I use this in the book of taking a, a tablespoon and dipping it into the ocean and not finding a whale and saying whales don't exist. Our perspective is so incredibly small. Um, and, uh, because it's so small, there's there's no way that I can say one way or another. I do think, though, that especially the current iteration of how we view the afterlife, I think that that detracts us from living in the here and now. And that is really the main thrust of my book, is I wanted to take the afterlife down from heaven, so to speak, and make it something or allow it to be something that can exist for me now and exist for you now. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of shame around that, I think, especially because Christianity doesn't feel too comfortable with uh, some of those uh, things that could be considered witchcraft or seances or things of that nature. And, and if that's what uh, people are doing, that's, that's fine, but that's not what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I do think, however, that when we take our mind out of the clouds or when we take our understanding of the afterlife out of the clouds and we bring it down here and we realize just how much those that have preceded us and our dead loved ones still exist, just how much their feelings, their beliefs still exist in me, just how much the work that they've done is still rippling throughout my life and through the life of others and reconnecting with that instead of approaching it with some type of possibly shame Mm -hmm. that I want to talk to my dead loved one or possibly feeling that maybe I'm a little bit crazy if I hear their voice. I don't think those things are crazy at all. I think if we love somebody and if we connect deeply with somebody, they become a part of us in a very real way. And that's another thing that I talk about how we as people, this individual individualistic perspective that we have of ourselves keeps us disconnected from our ancestors because we are more than who we are right here. We are, a collection of experiences and that's what dna essentially is it's uh, the experience of generations and generations affecting us physically and, and how we grow and how we look and so believing that there's some type of emotional dna or spiritual dna where the choices and the beliefs and the love that people have given us despite them being dead, still exists. And finding a way to allow that to become a normality in our lives, for me, is the most real afterlife that we can experience right now. You know, given your theological uh, scholarship and the pursuit of your doctorate, are, are you still in pursuit of the doctorate? COVID killed that pursuit. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, we, uh, 
We were so busy. Um, the reason I ask about that is, uh, you know, I have found uh, Bart Ehrman's work to be really insightful. I wonder if you've read any of his. I was just reading uh, something today about him, but I <laughs> really? had never read any of his work. <laughs> it was a comment in a discussion forum uh, about him being a genius. Yeah, for our audience, he's a professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And he, I love his work because he respects and honors gospel and scripture. And yet he also brings a, you know, a, a skeptical discipline to it and a historical discipline to it. And, and I thought this was interesting because I knew we were going to talk about the concept of heaven so i was curious about what he he says and and his his thinking on this is that this idea that you die and go to heaven is not found in the old testament that jesus really never taught about heaven and i read this from an interview that ermin did about that in uh, on npr in 2020 he says, Jesus's main teaching is that the kingdom of God is coming. People today, when they read the phrase kingdom of God, they think he's talking about heaven, the place that your soul goes to when you die. But Jesus isn't talking about heaven because he doesn't believe he's a Jew. He doesn't believe in the separation of soul and body. I just find that kind of historical and deep reading of sacred texts to be, well, really insightful for understanding how we got to the beliefs that we got to and why, and this is what you're writing about, why we grab onto them, and how to see this maybe in a more enlightened way. What What's that say to you? The last part of that quote is pretty significant for me, uh, the division of body and soul. And of course, that not being a part of uh, the Jewish perspective, uh, specifically in Jesus's time, that is a key belief in the Christian perspective, at least the contemporary Christian perspective of what heaven and hell look like, that our body dies, but our soul goes on to heaven. And I think especially as we consider neuroscience, as we make advances uh, in ways that we could have never thought of, that idea is just starting to go by the wayside, that we are a, a whole, that we are embodied, and it's impossible for us not to be embodied. The mind can't simply be removed and have the same understanding without the things that we're used to and can feel through our senses. Without our senses, we don't have the same words. Without our senses, we don't have an understanding of, of much of anything. And so it's impossible to be disembodied person. We are, we are embodied. And so that's, again, I, I don't think that that detracts from the possibility of an afterlife. I think it makes it, if it is a possibility, makes it more creative uh, because what we're becoming or what we could become, and this probably is a part of uh, the kingdom of God coming, if, if this is what Jesus was thinking, I don't know, who knows. Um, 
but the kingdom of God coming if we are embodied people is is some type of embodied experience it's not disembodied mm-hmm. uh, and so imaginatively if we take a non-dualist non-dualistic perspective and take an embodied perspective um, the afterlife again becomes much more about connection about and much more grounded in what we experience uh, and much more here now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that is one of the benefits of attempting to redefine the afterlife post-dualism or non-dualistic. I think when we allow ourselves to do away with that distinction entirely. It it allows us to have a more enlightened view of what the afterlife could be and what the afterlife is. Because again, that's my perspective. It's not that I don't believe in the afterlife. I think we should just be focusing on the one that's right here and the, the one that exists within us. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a conversation with Caleb Wilde. He's the director of the Wild Funeral Home in Parksburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, His family has been in the family business for many, many generations. Caleb, you said 170 years, right? 170. (laughs) Wow. And, um, And he writes for a number of different publications about the work that he does and the ideas and the encounters that he has, uh, and he's put some of that together in a new book called All the Ways Our Dead Still Speak. You've encountered families in your work who, I think it's fair to say, test your skepticism in the best way. And, and mm-hmm. one of them is Gerda, whose husband, Noshi, am I, Nashi Noshi, am I pronouncing that? <laughs> What's his name? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He died, no, she, and he died after a long, after they'd had a long marriage. Will you describe what Gerda tells you about having an encounter with her husband's spirit and what you thought when she described it? Yeah, so, and just to give a a higher view before come back into this. Uh, my experience has been that a significant amount of families either experience or see some interaction with, I don't know what might be called ghosts, but I'm not entirely comfortable with that word for a couple reasons, but we'll not go there. But I think that so many do and so few of those many actually talk about it but if people started to talk about their afterlife experiences i think we'd all realize that this is quite a common experience where the deceased sees a loved one and when they're seeing the loved one there isn't many signs of hallucination there's still uh, some stability of mind or hears voices from family members. And 
for most of my career, I've been uh, skeptical that these are just things made up in their minds. And then I started to think, well, there's nothing wrong with that. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with us being able to finally, maybe maybe when we're close, close to death, maybe this is what it is. We finally give ourselves permission to listen mm-hmm. to the, the voices that have informed us all throughout our lives that we loved, that parented us, that were part of our family, that become us. We are not just ourselves. And maybe it's just at the end that we finally realize that the voices that we've heard or the the things in our head that we may have originally seen as crazy, maybe we give ourselves permission at the end to say, well, maybe it's okay if I lean into this. And so the interesting thing that happens occasionally is that people like me, people who are much more skeptical, experience that. And the process of understanding it is conflicting because here we have an experience that we don't believe in. So it must be our own perception that's wrong Mm -hmm. and there must be something wrong with us. Uh, And so Gerda is representative. Uh, Of course, I, because I'm so closely knit to the community of Parksburg uh, I'm not using real names, and um, some of the uh, characters are composite characters, but she represents that person, and there's been many, who have experienced something that they don't allow themselves to believe. And I think that is just as sad as the incredibly religious person who uses heaven as a way to not think. Uh, they both diminish questions and they both diminish our ability to lean into experiences. Uh, and so I want to, op- I wanted to open up space for both. And Gerda was uh, a way for me to do that of, uh, ha- having her say the things that I've heard said to me, uh, having her process, the processes that I've seen other people experience and ultimately allowing herself to lean into it. Um, And I think we need space for that. We need space to allow ourselves to question these simplistic views of heaven and also allow ourselves the ability to experience Experience something we might not even believe in. Um, and that's the space that I am interested in sitting in. And that's the space that I hope this book creates. You, um, you've written about the difference in serving white families and families of color with funeral services. And you say in, in that section of the book... In my experience, white funerals only conjure the living. Hmm. Explain what that means and how it differs from 
you know, being witness to providing services to families of color, Hispanic families, black families in, in the area? The funeral is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, it's what precedes it or the assumptions or the connections that is where the real difference is. Uh, white people just, and this is my experience, but there's a lot of individualism and pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And uh, this idea that uh, you can do anything you set your mind to. And when you do, you should be quite proud of what you have accomplished. Um, and I don't find that in uh, many other communities. And it's really exemplified at funerals where there's a connectedness. And the connectedness already existed before the funeral. So it wasn't like all of a sudden it happens at a funeral. Um, but the, the idea that I am not just my own person. And when we take that idea into a funeral, that we are all connected, those of us dead, those of us living, and those of us yet to live. When we bring that into a funeral, it enables us to conjure the dead. It enables us to reconnect with our ancestors. And that's the power that I've seen uh, contrasting the Protestant funerals and you know specifically I'm my experiences with the AME church where there's the this feeling in an AME funeral service that you're not just there with the living but that you're there with generations and that the grief that you're crying isn't just your grief it's grief from the generations before you and so there's a a, a bigger weight and an ability to allow these emotions to manifest that Protestant services just don't have. Uh, and this is something that I've noticed uh, over the 20 years of working at the funeral home and serving multiple communities is that one seems to be able to conjure the dead. And that is a beautiful, and again, conjuring, I understand there's implications there that I don't want to, uh, I'm not saying that we're conjuring in the sense that there's a seance, <laughs> but mm -hmm. the idea that we're bringing generations of feelings and generations of experiences into the building when we come together. And it's powerful because it's not just the grief. It's not just your grief. It's our grief. Uh, and I, I think that that is how we heal. And the old saying, grief shared is grief diminished. And we're not going to share if we don't see ourselves as connected to other people. Uh, but we will when we realize that we are. And that everything that we do is not out of context or abnormal. Because everything that we do isn't just us. It's all of us. And it allows us space to be who we are when we realize that we aren't just ourselves. And I see that in AME funerals. I, I'm sure you served 
many families from many different backgrounds during the pandemic. You alluded earlier to how busy you've been during this time. I, I'm, I wondered if it had, if living through that and, you know, being a part of this, that the, that the globe experienced together, if it changed your view of death, of, of what death is in any way and the role you play in it. The pandemic underscored a lot of the things that we take for granted. And with funerals, a lot of them were obviously limited. They, we couldn't invite the public. Uh, their people didn't want to invite the public. Families didn't want to have anything that could potentially expose them to COVID. So they were incredibly small. My grandfather died during COVID. And it was just our family where otherwise he had been a, a pillar of the community. And if it had been public, it would have been the most of the community that showed up. But we didn't have that. Um, and he would have been disappointed because he always talked about wanting a massive funeral service. Oh, <laughs> really? How interesting. He, he wanted the pomp and circumstance. Huh. <laughs> Um, which is the exact opposite of what I'm looking for. But it underscored just how important it is to grieve with others and just how important this experience of death needs to be situated in a community. And that, that experience was robbed from, from a lot of families who had deaths during COVID, whether from COVID or not. It didn't have to be from COVID to have a limited funeral. Um, so COVID did change things for me, and the dying process was lonely. Uh, their family wasn't always able to be there if somebody was dying in a nursing home or a hospital, or if they were, it was just a few. And so again, there is this underscore that COVID created of just how important the dying process and the funeralization and death process, how important it is that it's done in the context of community. And I think we're going to see a lot of people have complicated grief for multiple reasons, not just the loneliness of the whole experience during COVID. Uh, but I think there's going to be a lot of complicated grief that we'll see people begin to deal with as we're coming out of the haze, especially those families who lost. What you just said about how your grandfather wanted all the pomp and, and the rituals, and you, I think you said something like, that's the opposite of what I want, leads <laughs> yeah. me to believe you've given some pretty specific thought to what you want your own funeral rites to be like. What What's the over... What's the overlying or overarching philosophy about how you want to be ushered out of the world? Capitalism has poisoned the funeral industry. And there's massive price markups. There's ways and traditions of tra traditional funerals 
happening that benefit the funeral home. I don't think that that's the way it should be. I, capitalism and funeral service aren't good partners. We shouldn't exploit people who are in grief. We shouldn't exploit people who are at the lowest moment of their lives. And that's exactly what often happens. And if you ever go to a funeral home and you feel exploited, leave. Just leave. You don't need somebody using your weakness as a way to increase their salary. Um, so I would like to look at it from a different perspective where I'm not interested in, in making the funeral director more wealthy. I just want to be buried with a biodegradable casket <laughs> without a vault and a wicker in, in on embalmed in a green cemetery. Huh. I'd love to be lowered by my family. I don't need a lowering device to lower me. They've carried me my entire life. And uh, I want it to be simple and focused on us, not the pomp, not the expensive casket, not what suit is everybody going to wear or what dress needs to be worn or what church we're going to. And those things are all important. And there's certainly no problem with any of them except when they get in the way of community. And that's going to be my focus. And it, I, and that's what I want, you, uh, a green burial. You just, you made a point of saying unembalmed. Why, mm. why are so many people embalmed and why, why are you specifically saying, don't do that for me? It's a trauma bond. Embalming is a trauma bond and it started in the Civil War and it just created such an incredible bond in the history of the United States, which is the only place where embalming is, is prevalent in the world is right here. And it's because embalming allowed many, many families to see their boys who had been killed on the battlefield come back home without being in a decomposing state. And then Lincoln's embalmed body was paraded all throughout the United States. And it created, I believe, a, a trauma bond. It's usually unnecessary. It's incredibly helpful when there's been a, a catastrophic death or when there's been a very traumatic physical death. It can help restore people and allow the family a respectable look at their loved one one last time. But for the most part, it's not necessary. If a body stays in a cooler, uh, it's usually going to look 90 to 95% as good as an embalmed body. And I'm sure if there's funeral directors listening, they will push back on that. Uh, but it's a bond that no longer needs to exist. Uh, we can care for our dead without embalming. You know, embalming is useful if there's going to be a viewing open casket, right? I mean, I, I guess I wonder, that kind of thing I have to admit 
for myself makes me pretty uncomfortable. When I have relatives who choose that, it always seems somewhat antithetical right. to the philosophy of the family. Um, do you find that many people wish to be viewed after their death? It's becoming less and less as the prevalence of cremation continues to rise. And the projections were that we would become equivalent to Europe, which I think is about 85% in Europe or cremated, or at least in England. And the United States was supposed to reach that same percentage in like 2050 or 2055 mm. or 2060. I forget the projections. But COVID changed that because now not only does cremation make sense financially, but it also makes sense because we're not going to have a viewing anyways. There's not going to be a public viewing. So it makes sense practically. And I think that percentage is going to rise significantly uh, quicker than anybody anticipated because of COVID. Um, so I, I don't know that embalming is going to last too much longer and that the viewing of the body is going to last too much longer. However, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think it can be healthy sometimes because it solidifies in our head that, yes, indeed, um, this person who I love and who I'm used to seeing come through the door every morning at nine o'clock to drink coffee with me before we head off to work, that person is no longer going to come through that door. And so the viewing of the body, whether embalmed or not, whether public or private, I think is healthy. And we often encourage families who choose cremation, if they want, we encourage them to come into the funeral home to have a private viewing. It just helps that process of knowing that this is indeed um, the end. Caleb Wilde's book is titled All the Ways Our Dead Still Speak. Caleb, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Yes, thanks for having me. Remember me and let the love we have 